welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. I am your host, Matthew Dawkins, and I am joined by my co-hosts, as ever, Dixie Cochran. Hi there. And Eddie Webb. Hello. I say as ever, obviously sometimes one of us is absent, usually me, but this time it's all three of us. So that's that's always nice, isn't it? Oh, we... we're all together. Yeah. Although I admit I'm still mad about the steamed punk joke from last week. Oh, well, it, it stuck <laughs> with you, though. It did. I'm still mad about it. <laughs> Someone uh, pointed out to me recently, I was at a wedding party, that my humor is based largely around telling a bad joke and then me laughing. <laughs> that, uh, that I... <laughs> you are laughing at the discomfort you're causing in yeah, other people yeah, that, with your bad joke. Exactly. My sense of humor seems to be all about getting someone irritated. Uh, and then laughing at them. And then they laugh because they are laughing at themselves. So I guess I'm playing <laughs> jokes on people rather than telling jokes for people. <laughs> so you are laughing at them, not with them, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, I think good. So. I don't know if that makes me a sociopath. Uh, <laughs> but I suppose if I don't care, I, it may mean that I am. Uh, so <laughs> thank you, Dr. Explain Dawkins. Explain so much my, about this podcast, yeah, honestly. My, my pleasure, Dr. So Dawkins. So much, so much. <laughs> Uh, so, with all that said, how how are you both working on anything interesting lately? Never. And Eddie, <laughs> <laughs> we've never made an interesting book in our lives. I don't know no, what uh, about. why am I here? Everything's interesting, right? Is, well, is that yes. the answer? Yes, but what 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 specifically is interesting to you right now? Um, exalted essence, obviously. So excited about. Mm-hmm. How is that coming along? It's coming along. Um, as as folks know, you know we we previewed everything during the Kickstarter. It is a new system, so it had some uh, wheel kicking that had to get done. Um, and now we are you know bolting the wheels back onto it before it goes into like real editing. Uh, but I'm very very excited about it. We got a lot of great feedback from the Kickstarter, um, mm. which I think will just make it for a, a much stronger project. So looking forward to getting that one out to people at some point. Obviously. Uh, looking forward to getting all my other Exalted stuff shunted along. Like we're working on uh, Across the Eight Directions and Hundred Devils Night Parade and all those kind of books that were log jammed for a bit. Uh, but I've been seeing art for them and I've been seeing it at a text for them. And it's it's just very exciting right now. Oh, we're in Exalted land. Yeah, there's a lot of Exalted, a lot of exciting Exalted news um, yeah. with, with all kinds of things. And uh, how about you, Eddie? What are you working on right now that excites you? Um, well, to be fair, a lot of it right now is under NDA, so it's like, um, well, there's just one thing I can't talk about. There's another thing I can't talk about. Well, don't there's pick one of those. Third thing I can talk about. <laughs> okay. um, but... Um, uh, uh, I will say squeaks in deep. I um, was very happy with how the Kickstarter turned out. I actually don't think we've done a postmortem on that, but um, I was actually pretty pleased with with how it turned out overall. We got uh, more money and more backers than we did with Pirates, and that's after an increase of things like shipping and printing costs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's actually a pretty pretty steep hill to overcome, and we did a pretty good job with it, so I'm, I'm happy with that. Uh, so naturally, that's... Um, Actually, already in layout, uh, uh, so we're gonna keep working on that. Um, Mike's thinking about how we can approach that book layout, and whatnot. Um, do you know I what? Been, oh, sorry, I was gonna say, do you know what the balance was, uh, like PDF backers as opposed to hard copy backers? About the same, interestingly oh. enough. Um, uh, and also, because uh, I was actually talking with Rich about this, um, I expected uh, a a bigger uptick. Um, in 
US-based backers and also PDF backers. Mm. Um, and while there was more of both, uh, it was not nearly as high as I expected, like maybe 50 more in each direction. Yeah, yeah. So so it, it, it's, a, it's a noteworthy amount, but I was expecting like a lot bigger shift and it just wasn't there. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that, that's, um, that, that's always, you know, very exciting. Uh, I, I have been getting some playtest data in, uh, it's going to, again, because it's in layout already, it's going to be mostly tweaking, you know, things here and there a little bit. We've talked before about the layout process and how it should be a ton of changes. So it's on the same boat for this. I'm going to mostly, you know, uh, adjust things to be a little clearer here and there. Um, a couple of, of rules I want to adjust that didn't quite land the way I want to. In fact, playing in the game that um, we had on a, our Twitch channel was actually really, really helpful with the Forple Tales crew. Uh, yeah, that was just... fun. Also, you got to play. I got to play, and also it helped me to see the game in a way that I usually don't see from behind the screen, as it were. So I got a different set of playtest data, which was actually very helpful. So, um, And then, yeah, other than that, prepping Anima for... Uh, it, Rich has kind of stealth announced that we are doing Kickstarter for it, but we don't know when yet. Uh, so you can stop asking. But, yeah, right? Uh, <laughs> um, it, it's happened all the time. It's like, when is Kickstarter happening? It's like, it happens after the one that we've already announced, which is uh, Werewolf back up the record. So yes. it will happen some point after that. <laughs> and I will say, listeners, if you want to know more about Werewolf the Apocalypse, Apocalyptic Record, uh, that isn't even the full title. It's Werewolf the Apocalypse 20th Anniversary, 20th anniversary Edition, Edition Apocalyptic Record. Record. <laughs> uh, <laughs> then I interviewed Leith Shields, my co-developer on that book about it and other subjects, uh, several, about a month or two back. Uh, you'll be able to find that in the archive where you'll find many fantastic episodes that can keep you enthralled and entertained, I'm sure. Uh, you know, some of them you can take or leave. Mostly the ones with words like farty horns in the title. But <laughs> those, are, those are essential. They're, they're part yeah, of a meta plot. Essential listening. If you miss those, you completely miss the point of the entire <laughs> arc. You have to start again. Uh, so spend extra time on those farty horns. Also, I want to clarify, the title actually is Werewolf, colon, the Apocalypse, colon, 20th anniversary tradition, colon, Apocalyptic Record. It, it does not have a lack of colons, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, it's uh, part of the uh, shape-shifting process. <laughs> now... It's a weird colon. Yeah, actually, you know what? I've never read... It might be in the Werewolf Cookbook, but I don't think so, because that's largely a meta book. Mm-hmm. Uh, what? Ha- how a Krynos werewolf's diet changes... I'm not. I'm not being. I'm not fixating on the colon side of things. Uh, I'm, you know, because you, most of the time you only adopt that form for battle, right? Um, and wolves, as we know, I believe uh, that they are. I think they can be omnivores in the sense that they can eat roughage. They just tend not to. Yeah, I mean, um, most, like most dogs and cats are obligate. Well, cats are obligate carnivores. Dogs, mm. I think, can do a mixture. Yeah, uh, but Look were a Krynos... So there's obviously some werewolves that are, their default form is Krynos. Uh, so I guess, what would their diet be? Because a lupus wolf is presumably going to be carnivorous as a general rule, if it grew up in a pack of wolves. But if you were born in Krynos, or if you have just adopted that form and stuck to it for quite a long time... 
what would you eat? Answers on a postcard, listeners, or <laughs> better, you can put it in the Discord, uh, or See, my co-hosts might come up with something. Well, the internet tells me that wolves also enjoy berries, like blueberries, ashberries, and cowberries, and fruit like apples and pears. Okay. And they also eat grass when their belly's upset, like puppies. I mean, obviously, if you're a red talon, the stereotype goes that you'll just eat humans. Um if you're in Krynos form, or or Lupus form, I think, or or probably Hobbit form, if you're a red talent. But yeah, um, now I'm just imagining a bunch of werewolves, a pack of werewolves. That's their proper uh, plural. A bunch of werewolves. <laughs> yeah, no, just <laughs> a bunch of werewolves. Plural. A group. Yeah, um, sat around a table enjoying dinner in Krynos form, and they have some kind of nice. Cherry pie to to eat. Be... Apparently, a wolf can eat nine kilograms of food in one meal. Well, um, that and that's what I'm thinking. They must have large appetites in Kronos. So, however, what, what what happens if you do that? You eat your like you know eighteen pounds of whatever, right? And then you and, shift back. Yeah, then you shift back. <laughs> uh, and an explosive digestive incident, I think. Yeah, so... is it like that 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 one Monty Python sketch? Yeah, right. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is that basically Kronos werewolves ultimately are on the paleo diet. Yeah, uh, for better or worse, <laughs> they <laughs> they um, it's it's like people, you know, real facetious people will say, "Well, you never see people going to the toilet on this TV show, or you never see anyone eating on this TV show." Well, this is why, because if you actually <laughs> role played out the scenes where your werewolf had something to eat, shifted into Krynos, had more to eat, shifted back into Homid, the next scene would be just unpleasant puerile <laughs> and and a different kind of uh savage horror you, you have shifted too hard please roll to take a shit <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately most of us have played in games where oh someone God. has tried to do that as a storyteller and it's never as amusing never as it good. sounds on paper uh, on paper very good so uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is this uh, podcast about Inspiration and tasty bits, which is something <laughs> None I really of this didn't is want tasty. to say. No, I was going to say. <laughs> and I am uh, not inspired in the slightest right now. <laughs> well, we'll we'll build up to it. We'll we'll get our way there. Uh, so, other than apocalyptic record, which I haven't really looked at for a few weeks because it is in editing. Um, no pressure, Dixie. Uh, <laughs> I have been uh, working on Aether, as I mentioned in what last week's episode. Yep. And what else have I been doing? They came from the Cyclops' Cave. Myself and co-developer Michele have been putting in the last changes that our uh, creative director, Richard Thomas, you might have heard of him, frequent listeners, uh, has requested. He's a tyrant, a dictator. He looks at a manuscript, he tears it apart, and he says, no, I do not want this. So everything that you've written, 100,000 words of this, in the bin. I want you to start from <laughs> scratch. I'm seeing not enough Cyclopses in here. Every playable person has got to be one-eyed. Exactly. Sometimes I feel like you just go off on these things because you know Rich listens to the podcast. Yes. And you just... I'm testing him. Yeah, you're just testing the water here. <laughs> and I'm testing him to make sure that he is still listening. By uh, calling him a dictator that throws away hundred thousand. <laughs> He'll get a response. All attention is good attention, Dixie. I don't think that's true. I my class used to do this at school when I was in history. Uh, so I really loved history, 
when I was at school, and uh, and I found that many of my classmates hated it. It was one of those weird things where, as a pupil, I was unaware of why they hated it. And I used to find the teacher we had, Mr. Kite, incredibly entertaining because he would call pupils' names. He would throw his keys across the class at people, the blackboard, a razor. Once he tried to lift up his chair and throw it at a pupil, and it broke in half as he tried. So that was lucky. And I was wow. never one wow. of the pupils that had these things thrown at them. So I used to think this was hilarious. This was great fun. Uh, to the point that when I got an A in history at the end of my school tenure, he actually sent me a, a check for £50. Every pupil who got an A got a £50 check. So the person who got an A star got something like £100. He was very generous. But it turns out that if you weren't interested in history, he made your life an absolute hell. And so people hated history. If you weren't interested in it as much as the people who were, he would do things like throw foreign objects at you wow. and so yeah he developed a bit of a reputation now one of his homework techniques we used to have three hours of history a day uh, a day three hours of history a week and uh, there would be a double history period of two hours and one of a single hour and you'd likewise get two pieces of history homework a week one right. of those would be a, t a typical exercise, compare and contrast the American deployment in Vietnam compared to the American deployment in Korea or something like that. And the other would be make notes about everything you've learned in the last uh, double history session. And what notes was, according to Mr. Kite, was copy out the textbook, copy out the pages that we have read, literally word for word, verbatim, what? in your workbooks. And you still had to hand them back and get them marked by oh him. My God. And so myself and the other pupils just started writing a load of nonsense. You would make it look like the textbook, but you'd include gibberish in, in the midst of it, uh, just to see whether he was actually reading it. Uh, of course he wasn't reading it. He wasn't going to read the same... The same four pages from 20 pupils every single week. Uh, so, yeah, he would just give us an A every week for writing absolute trash. So that very long-winded uh, anecdote is my similar test for Rich, that if he can pick up on this long-winded trash that I am currently speaking, then kudos to you, Rich. You're better than my history teacher. <laughs> I thought I thought it was going to be the that all of Aether was just going to be one hundred thousand words of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> well, that as well. I mean, that's that's more down to the writers than me. I couldn't possibly <laughs> take credit for all of the nonsense in that book. Uh, <laughs> but uh, well, the true test with Aether will be when it goes to Eddie and Ian, of course, because right. as our two uh, Trinity, uh, let's call them what they are, busy bodies. <laughs> They they will tell me whether it actually makes sense or not, and whether I need to change great swathes of it in uh, to, development. To fair, I will gladly take the busybody title. I think Ian is much more actually a content lead and therefore doing his job, whereas I just like to walk in and go, "No, this is chronically an accurate Sherlock Holmes," and then flounce off. So, well, currently, and I know you won't believe it, Eddie. One of the writers has it written that. Sherlock Holmes, or someone very much like him, falls off the this waterfall or something like that, and is presumed no, dead. And then someone else in another chapter has written that Sherlock Holmes is walking around alive. 
I mean, how can the two That's work? just it, inconceivable. It, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So uh, we'll get that ironed out for consistency. I appreciate that. Yeah. Because we know one thing that Conan Doyle was rigorous on was making sure that all of his stories lined up and were canonically accurate to each other. Well, we know that when he started that canon, he had a straight line in his mind, linear. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Everything yep. would make perfect sense. Everything falls perfectly into place. Yeah. I'm just very glad we managed to get Colonel Moran from Sherlock Holmes in that book. Um, nice. Only because I appreciate any literary villain whose preferred method is rolling boulders onto his victims. <laughs> it's um, a very much a wily e. Coyote uh, <laughs> style of I'm going to kill you right now by throwing rocks at you from atop a mountain. But damn it, he gave it a try and was still the second least, most second deadliest man in London. Second deadliest man in London, yes. Mm. Not many boulders in London. That's why he's, he's one of two. He, uh, of the two Japanese men, in the, he's number two out of yeah. two. Uh, if there were more boulders in London, he'd be number one, but sadly, no. Right. Uh, so speaking of boulders, tasty bits. <laughs> that is a hard this segue. This is not making any sense. We're 20 minutes in. We've talked about your terrible teacher. <laughs> And Aether and Martians, and I, I don't know what's happening. We haven't spoken about Martians yet. Well, I keep we? thinking about them, because when you talked about putting it in a weird language, all I could think of was that he was going to put it all in that oola kind of language <laughs> from the War of the Worlds. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Martians don't say much other than oola. Uh, right, so in... it's just 100k of oola. <laughs> oh, I think he would have noticed that. Well, you like wrote like one cover page, so he wouldn't look at the rest of it. <laughs> I missed a trick there. I uh, could have really practiced my uh, my fountain pen use uh, and <laughs> L's and A's. There you go. Yeah. Did you handwrite the manuscript? Uh, yes. I used to handwrite my history homework with a fountain pen. I can't say I handwrote Aether. With I'm a not... fountain pen? You yeah. were fancy. No, we all had to use fountain pens at school. You weren't allowed to use biros, you know, really? ballpoint. No, Wait, no, no. really? Yeah, yeah, my school. Why? I, was, no one it, uses. What? It was the same. Uh, it wasn't just my school. I didn't go to Hogwarts or some other transphobic ho- place. <laughs> um, uh, uh, <laughs> poor, poor Hogwarts. That a school whose name has been tarnished by its creator. A school whose name is Hogwarts. It's, yeah. it's warts on a hog. Who wants a, that? A school with no toilets. A school with no biology lessons. A school that might might as well be run run by um, some of the worst. Actually, oh, you know what? Let's let's move off of that. Um, <laughs> at, at... Anyway, fountain pens. So you're yeah. saying how you were raised in the 19th century, apparently. Uh, maybe I was, and maybe I fell into torpor. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but what I do know is that my school was not unique in this. It was only when I got to college, I guess when I was 17, that people were allowed to use uh, biros. And still, even then, we were huh. st- some people were still using fountain pens because it was what you were expected to do. Uh, it was a part of... English, um, I guess, as a lesson, that and, and handwriting that your handwriting would develop to a to be more readable. This is arguable uh, to be tidier if you were skilled in using a fountain pen than if you were using a biro. Huh. Um, like so. we had to learn handwriting and stuff, but I mean, I 
I remember doing my initial like cursive lessons and things with like a pencil, you know, <laughs> like yeah. I, 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 I use pencils and then we use ballpoint pens. And of course, what, what makes me the most sad about this, Matthew, is that you and I were in middle and high school in the age of the brightly colored gel pen. Yeah. And I had so many freaking gel pens and so did all my friends. And we would buy black paper that we could write on with our pastel oh gel pens. God. And we thought it was so cool. Um, shush, Eddie. Uh, and yeah, like <laughs> like gel, gel and jelly pens were like a thing in the, in the late 90s, right? Mm. Like they were a big thing for a little while there. And it makes me so sad that British kids didn't get to experience that. Well, we got both. The teachers were like fountain pens. Yeah, we got blue and black ink. Let's not go too far. Oh, there wow. Was, uh, yeah, we got choice. I right, mean, whereas I, I had like scented sparkly purple ink. <laughs> yeah, Eddie's being very flippant right now just because he had to use a wax tablet. <laughs> but we... Uh... <laughs> I had an Apple IIe, thank you very much. <laughs> um, yeah, well, well, I mean, we moved on from literally carving our names into apples with quills uh, by the <laughs> by the mid nineties. Uh, so, <laughs> I'm um, just saying, shout out to Jelly Roll pens. That was a whole thing. They were great. I still have a Parker fountain pen uh, that I used to use, uh, even even when I was writing, uh, when I used to do handwriting notes, until I realized that I would get through more of these than I would just a simple biro, because the nib would you know, just go off askew slightly. Um, mm. And so either the ink would run out of it or it would become a horrible scratchy thing that would keep picking up fluff. And uh, not not selling Parker pens very well here, but Parker, if you're listening, we're always looking for sponsors. <laughs> um, Why do you call them Byros? Uh, that is the brand name over here, as right. far as I know. Oh, okay. yeah, it's similar to how like uh, Xerox is kind of associated with, with copy machines. Yeah, well, or no, like, Kleenex. I, yes, I understand like Kleenex and whatever, but like I, I've never heard of Byro pens because over here, Bic is the main manufacturer mm. for yeah. pens that most people are familiar with. Yeah, like as far as just like your your standard ballpoint pen is usually a Bic. Um, they're not what I use because I have a preferred pen of choice with which to write my cursive. And what is your preferred pen of choice? Uh, it is a specific kind of uniball. Let me see if I can find one. They're always pens all over my desk. Did Neil steal my uniballs? <gasps> Whatever. It's a it, it's a really really specific kind of uniball that I like a lot. Oh, here's one. It is a uniball Vision Elite. Ooh, being the elite. Of pens, they're just comfortable for me to hold. I I, I hold pens weird, um, so I have to like find the right kind of pens for me. This is a really weird conversation to be having on the podcast. I'm so sorry, everybody. Um, Actually, um, I, I did quickly Google uh, the biro thing because <laughs> it's not now interested. Um, the man who invented the, the type was called his last name was Biro. Pen Biro. No, it was, <laughs> he was. Um, I have to go look it up now because he <laughs> fucked me up. <laughs> Uh, Laszlo Biro, which seemed oh, better. Laz actually. Yeah, Laszlo Biro is out. He bled blue and black. Right. Um, but um, he sold his patents, uh, his French patents, to a man named Marshal Biche, who shortened his name to Bic. Oh, so mm. you're just using knockoff Biros over here. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> the Frenchman was trying to corner the German market by uh, making his name a little harsher there. Right. <laughs> Appeal to those Anglo Saxons in Britain and America by saying, uh, Je m'appelle Bic. 
Now I just like it has just occurred to me. It's, it's so weird living in the age of computers, having grown up not in that age as much, right? Yeah. Because like it's just occur- occurred to me that I don't know what either of y'all's handwritings look like, hmm. aside from your like signing things. Yeah. Like, signing this books. Is, this is for everyone's benefit. Trust me. I'm just saying it's just strange to me that like you can know somebody really well and not know what their handwriting looks like. Whereas like in high school, we passed notes and shit. You know, like yeah. Well, like, I-, I knew what everybody's handwriting looked like for my friend group when I was 17 and now I'm like, I don't know. Well, I mean, uh, I, I've been watching some unexplained mystery, unsolved mysteries. That's it. And so many of them come down to, uh, we didn't know who the person was, but their handwriting looked like this right? or, or this person sent us a letter and we were able to work out it was this person because it was in the handwriting. And that is a bit of a dying art because I could, count on very few hands the numbers number of articles around my house that i have handwritten yeah like i can i can safely say that my boyfriend's like the only person that really sees my handwriting on a regular basis because i i I update our weekly menu on Mm. our fridge every day yeah every week And, and yet weirdly um i handwrite notes often when i'm in meetings yeah, like i i handwrite post-it notes to myself and stuff like that um but not to share with the group, I guess. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Not for sharing. It's, it's for me, but I just find I, I, mem- I remember what happened in the meeting better if I write it down. I feel like we should all post handwriting samples to the uh, to the Discord. Well, now I wouldn't. I would feel unsafe doing so, strangely. Not because I've committed a bunch of criminal acts and I'm worried about my handwriting being tied to them. It's not that at all. Don't persecute me for that. Uh, <laughs> but, or prosecute me. Uh, it's... Yeah, the it now that I don't do so much in handwriting, uh, mm. it feels like a more personal thing than it would have in the past. That typing gives a certain anonymity because your 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 text looks exactly the same as anyone else's. But yeah, if I handwrite it, that is in a weird way an extension of myself. I'm not trying mm. to sound too airy about this. It's. Um, that that is, I think, how I feel about my handwriting now. It's the same reason I don't actually give a signature if someone asks me oh, to yeah, sign a book. Oh yeah, you always write like your initials in like a little onk or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because well, I'm not going to give my actual signature for fraud purposes, and I don't even have a signature that could look like a signature. I just go for yeah, M an onk that has long since. Stop looking like an ankh. It now looks like yeah, a wizard from look Final k- Fantasy. Kind of deflated. <laughs> yeah, I usually put a scythe in one of its arms so that it looks a bit like the Grim Reaper. And that seems to work. And yeah, D on the other side, and that's it. Uh, yeah, okay. Oh. Well, you know, we're nearly halfway through the episode and we've mentioned the title <laughs> of what we so, so let's talk about red lines. Uh. <laughs> That, that's uh, also not the topic we're talking about today. I know. I just love the idea of what your expressions might have been. When I <laughs> uh, because some of our co-developers print off manuscripts when they get there in their first drafts, and they handwrite red lines, don't that's they? True, and true. then they type them in after the fact. Which is also so strange to me. Like, it just seems like such a... First of all, that's a lot of paper. Yeah. There's a lot of paper that you're wasting. Mage 20, especially. If you're listening to this site here, we know you do this. <laughs> but, like, also, it just... I, 
I guess there are some people for whom, like, I have, I have, I talked to folks like this for whom, like, reading electronically just never became a thing they were really comfortable with. Mm. And that, I think, includes, like, their reading comprehension on, like, Word documents. Yeah. And therefore, they, they, they prefer the physical book, which I get on some level. Like, I, I prefer physical books over PDFs when it comes to role-playing games. But I have no problem reading novels on my Kindle, for instance, right? But when it's something with, like, pictures and charts and tablets, I, I prefer a physical copy. Tablets? Tables. I knew what I meant. Um... But yeah, so that's 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 interesting when I see people do that because I'm like, it seems like so much extra work, but I get if like you need that for the reading comprehension. Yeah, I think um, some of our non-native English developers, English speakers, um, that was a mouthful, um, do do the printing and handwriting because it is harder to comment fluidly uh, on a type document in a foreign language. Um, so I've had a couple at least come to me and say that their preferred method is they handwrite in their own language and then they will go on to um, Word or whatever and retype it all. Oh, that's interesting. Um, now, I don't know why they don't type it in their own language and then just uh, translate it afterwards. Who knows? I'm not one to criticize someone's uh, method if it's working. Uh, but, yeah, it, it, again, if you're, if you're one of these people and you're listening, please tell us why. Tell me why. Uh, want a heartbreak yeah that, that's just line i forgot i was like i think it's the line D- dixie would not will know dixie knows a lot about music <laughs> tell me why nothing but a i think it's heartache heartache yeah tell me why but a mistake tell me why I never want to hear you say. All I can think of now is that Brooklyn Nine-Nine cold open. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me why. Yeah, just... (laughs) Uh, I have not thought of that song in a long time, though, aside from the Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode. So, huh. There you go. Um, Speaking of inspiration. (laughs) 29 (laughs) minutes in. (laughs) Uh, well, here's a very uh, general question for you, Eddie, as you just uh, used the word. <laughs> what inspires you? <laughs> what is like, inspiration? <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, okay, yeah, I've got to ask you a good question, Eddie. I'm leaning forwards. I'm going to rest my chin on my hand. Where do you get your ideas? Oh, God, this fucking question. My brain. <laughs> so um, uh, I wish I remember which writer it was. I want to say it was... Um, uh, uh, Terry Pratchett, um, who would always answer the question by saying that there's actually a catalog you can order your ideas from. And you just have to know the address and get the catalog and you go through and say, oh, there's a good idea. Um, but a lot of times when I hear this question, um, people are like, you know, where do you get your ideas from? What they're really asking, well, how I translate in my head is, how do you turn those ideas into something that's usable? Because ideas are mm. cheap. Yeah. Um, like, I, if you come up to someone and unironically say you're an idea person, understand that most professionals are inside laughing at you because that's just not a thing that happens. Yeah. Like, I, I, I am sometimes that person, but I understand that that's not like an important role on most teams. Mm. A, 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 a role for a very specific time period or for a brainstorming session. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So you like, could be the idea person for a moment or for, to bounce yeah. ideas off of. Yes. But your, your entire role is just to generate ideas. No. Yeah. There are definitely people that think that's a job in the games industry. I, right. I've seen people who think that and it's like, 
no, honey. Oh, well, Get it back uh, it up with something. Yeah, I think that the the sad tone is a bit right there because uh, I again I don't want to condescend or patronize, but I'm going to do it anyway. That I have been in a lot of meetings with people who are newly interested in getting into game development, or you know, mm-hmm. they come to me with their their, their new idea. They want to make a mm-hmm. game about X, right. and. Uh, what I tend to talk about before I start getting into, because I'm always on, I'm always keeping an eye open for work, for opportunities to work on something new and exciting. I may not always have the capacity, but that doesn't mean I'm not interested. Sure. And so sometimes people will come to me through my website or through Patreon, and they will say, um, "I would love to have you involved in this project." And sometimes. Uh, I will ask them for details, but the details I will ask them tend to be more structural and logistical than, Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so what's the, you know, what's the creative vision behind this? And I have received the response on several of occasions, well, I'm more of an ideas person. I need, you know, I need, I would need someone else to do that. So I said, okay, well, so after you put these ideas down on paper, where do you see yourself fitting into the team after that point? Mm-hmm. And after that, they, they tend to get a bit confused because they either don't know what their role will be or they want final say, which can create a whole raft of problems because if they're not involved in the creative process throughout, any kind of last-minute pulls or decisions can really sabotage a project. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, in general, some that if you need to be, if you want to be part of a team, you need to be a part of that team through almost the entire process. You need to be able to lend something to the team, not just a great idea. Right, and um, I'll speak for myself. I, I do think I've, a lot, a lot of pe- professionals are in a similar boat. Where when you become a professional creative, you start to develop the the ability to spontaneously generate ideas sometimes even on command. Um, but generally speaking, it's the, okay, I need to come up with an idea for this section now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that is an actual interesting topic. So like where you get your ideas, meh. how do you generate ideas quickly or how do you generate ideas as needed? That's a more interesting topic. Uh, and for me, um, part of it is uh, I, I stockpile a lot of ideas. Like I have ideas like, hastily scribbled into a Word document 15 years ago, shoved into a Dropbox folder. That case you open and go, who wrote this? Oh, wait, it was me. I have no idea what this means anymore, but apparently I really thought it was important <laughs> in 2004. Yeah, I've uh, been there. Um, but sometimes, like, you know, I, I have ideas floating around in my head that I've, I've been wanting to get to for a long time. Um, and sometimes you, you iterate and you iterate and you iterate in your head on it. Like, for example, Pugmire. Pugmire started off as... Me in the '90s, going. I'd like to do a D and D style setting, but I don't know how to make it how, how something that I, someone like me would enjoy because I have a lot of frustrations with a lot of traditional fantasy settings. And so it was back in my head for a long time, and just kept rolling around. And eventually, I paired it up with some other stuff, and Pugmire kind of became a thing. So it, when you say it, it's like I walked my dogs, and suddenly I had an idea for a role playing game. But it's missing the 10, 15 years of reading fantasy novels and watching fantasy films and playing other people's games and bits and pieces jump out at you and kind of lodge in your head. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, I think that's one piece of it. 
Um, but the other is also uh, something I learned from just brainstorming techniques uh, is that the first idea that comes to you is almost always crap. Uh, you, you have to do one or two rounds of ideas just to get the easy, lazy ideas out of your system. Right. <laughs> and then you start to go into, okay, you know, I, I've come up with all the obvious answers. Where's the good stuff? And, and um, there's been plenty of times I've been on project kicking ideas around and it's been like, okay, well, so well, here's this, 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 and this. Let's just take them as red, but let's actually kind of also throw them aside. And okay, what if we don't do those things? Uh, and so the idea, like, for example, on um, when we do our things like story hooks episode or the game episodes, uh, sometimes we come up with really cool ideas off the top of our head, but also some of those pitches we made are not great. Um, How dare you? I'm sorry that Dragon Tensai EX. <laughs> you remember the name of it, though, vaguely. No, I keep making, I keep changing it each time and you never notice because you've also forgotten it. Well, but... that's what makes it such a fantastically fluid game. No, no, yes, it's, I, it's great I, for I SEO. You don't know what the title of your own game is. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 do, I agree that yeah. So often the first idea. I mean, I've explained the story many times about they came from beneath sea. Started off as a mission-based uh, paramilitary sort of well, private military company-based game where you are legitimately the the only people that can fight off the aliens who are about to invade the surface dwellers it's horror it's action it was kind of XCOM, wasn't it it's XCOM. yeah that's yeah. exactly what it is and then i actually went as far as playtesting it and realized this is dull as dishwater mm-hmm. um but it was still the kernel of idea that that, of course, it blended with other things. I've again mentioned the Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, my All Flesh Must Be Eaten game based on that, and uh, my DC Heroes game with the pow and zap and bang cards that I put out that would allow people to um, get bonuses, you know, that kind of became quip cards as well. So, you know, all of these things come together. I think uh, a mistake a lot of people make is thinking that all inspiration has got to come by input that it's got to all come through, uh, well, these things definitely help, reading, Mm -hmm. watching, playing games, Mm -hmm. um, video games in particular in this example, that all of that is what will inspire you. It can inspire you, but it is very much a... That's a half job, in my opinion. I think you do have to expose your ideas to the rigors of criticism. Right. And whether that is through in the in the sense of role playing games, whether that's through playtesting, whether it's simply through discussion with your peers, and sometimes, and in fact, more often than not, I would recommend this: paying people to criticize your work. Uh, and so that, that this may be a controversial view. Not everyone has the audience to to say, "I've got an idea. Can you review it for free?" And one mm. could even argue that they shouldn't have to do so. And plus, some people will say, get a member of your family to read this manuscript or something like that. But that's no good either because no. this person cares about your feelings and isn't right. going to be as honest with you as perhaps they can. And if they are honest, it could hurt your feelings. So seeing the entire creative process as a business transaction because one would assume you do want to make something from this eventually is, in my view, a good thing. And by doing that, you not only have 
put your ideas on paper, you've also subjected it to other people's thoughts that you don't have to incorporate. You can dismiss them, or you can adjust them, or you can do whatever you want, or you can go back to them and disagree if you really want. Point being that that inspiration, it, it at least for, for it to work for me, needs to be chipped away at quite mm -hmm. a lot before it actually becomes something of value. Right. And um, for me also, I, that's why I like the collaborative process because um, people will interject things. And like I said, you throw a lot of it away, but sometimes they'll say something and it'll click and start taking direction. Um, I'll call, I'll put Dixie in the spot briefly because we've been in a lot of creative brainstorming sessions oh, in the no, past the few spot. years. Um, and <laughs> you're really good at shotgunning just like what about this what about this what about this what about this and you often do a really good job of coming up with a, a piece that then the team goes oh and go in this direction that direction um that because you're coming at it from power. a different perspective that is the superpower of adhd <laughs> like, and for it's, real it's, that is part of it i'm sure it is um and you've even called out as like going because my brain's going in a thousand different directions but in those kind of environments it's actually really helpful yeah, yeah, it's it, it is it is one of the few superpowers that ADHD gives you is that um you make a bunch of just weird ass connections in your brain. Uh, both me and my boyfriend do it all the time. Where one of us will be like, you know, just say something that seems like it's out of nowhere, mm. and then when you follow it back, it's like, oh, we were watching TV and there was a train, and then trains made you think of tracks, and then tracks made you think of the, the like like the, like trolley problem, and then that made you think of the good place, and then like like you just like right. go off on like this weird, you know, tangent. And the next thing you know, you're sitting here going like, hey, what about that 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 one philosopher from The Good Place? And it's like, why did you think of that? Because um, mm -hmm. my brain chose to do that. So yes, that is that is the one situation where I do think it is great to be an ideas person because you do just want to shotgun things sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, when you're doing those those brainstorming sessions, that's that's an important part of it. Because, uh, yes, sometimes we get a project like Anima where somebody has pretty much thought of everything that needs to be thought about. Right. But sometimes you're working on something new and it's like, what could we do that's new and different and interesting? Or what do we like from X thing? So, yeah. And actually, Anima is a good example because um, one of the things that the original material I was a little light on was I wanted to bring in um, player-created mm -hmm. uh, uh, aesthetic. Because one thing like games like EVE Online and World of Warcraft do is that players develop their own culture inside the game that isn't necessarily part of the game, but it's yeah. a metagame culture. And so I basically had to effectively say, take your ADHD brain and do five years of game culture in 10 seconds and then put that <laughs> down. Yeah. And like, uh, honestly, if I see, like, if we get some really good ideas, whenever we do end up kickstarting it, I will happily change some of those things because I think it's cool to come up with weird slang terms. Um, mm -hmm. I, my, my favorite one will always be grapes. Um, yes. because it's people who control the gray plane. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, the gray plane, grape, grape. Uh, yes, they're going to call them grapes. It's just mm -hmm. going to be what they call them. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was just fun. Uh, and yeah, coming up with like some, some, some guild names and some streamer names and what culture would be like in this MMO version of reality was really interesting. Cause I'm like, it'll probably still be influenced by things like world of Warcraft on some right. level, because mm -hmm. those have like established some of the lingo, like, you know, some, some of it's from RPGs as well, like tables of RPGs. Like, both of them use dots as damage over time spells. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, dots is a really common phrase in lots of RPGs. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, like, tanking, obviously. Yep. 
Uh, so yeah, there are a lot of things that probably wouldn't change just because they have a word that makes sense. But then there are a lot of new classes and new kinds of magic in the game. So obviously those are going to have their their own new things. Right. Um, but um, it, it, again, language is, is fascinating. This is another digression, but I'll keep it short. But like, uh, there's still uh, wargaming language in our tabletop industry. Um, like the fact that we call things campaigns or the fact that we use terms like initiative, that all comes from wargaming. And it's just stuck around. And mm. it now means something completely different to us in the, in our industry. But the actual word came from a very different place. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, one of the... Uh, we, we've been working on projects recently that are actually quite similar to our uh, come up with X number of games in the course of one podcast, which is our Tasty Bits. And... Uh, while we have had a year's worth of Tasty Bits planned, those plans don't really extend to fully-fledged, deeply rich, detailed outlines or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to be, here's a project, it's going to be very short, be creative. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, within, within this brief. And in some of those cases, <coughs> excuse me, in some of those cases, uh, so for instance, whether they came from ones, I've created them, and right. I've created them with a title in mind, and then I have just, I guess, plumbed the depths of the things that inspire me to mm-hmm. fill in those gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas others have arguably been more structured, uh, such as the. Mm-hmm. Ver- Would you disagree? Uh, uh, yes and no. Um, that's actually why I, it, it's interesting that we're pairing these episodes together because. Um, uh, so, step to step, the, the Tasty Bit program came about because um, Mike had bought a couple pieces of art that ended up not being in books. Oh, right. <laughs> that's totally how this all started. Forgotten. That's how this started. Um, uh, one piece of art just got cut because the book was a little bit shorter than expected because the material got cut. And so the piece just was used. And other ones, he got a piece that he thought was going to need and didn't need. And so this discussion was, can we come up with something to use these pieces of art? Right. And then from there, it was the, we find that the monthly releases are, are good for us, but all we've done is the monthly releases that lead to a book. Let's just do monthly releases that are just whatever. And so we said, we get some structure. So the story path is the structure. Um, but after that, it was, I literally went to a bunch of people and said, uh, here are your conditions. You cannot commission any new art. We can only use art pieces we have. There are a couple of pieces that we have that mm-hmm. we could. And, and in one case, it was literally, here's the art piece we have, build a piece around it. Right. Um, and so some of the creativity came, comes from those limitations, which is another important part of inspiration. Sometimes limiting your ideas, what your ideas you can do, can lead to some interesting thoughts. So, for example, um, the tasty bit that will either be out or coming. I've, I'm now blanking on it. This first scion. Um, uh, it's still coming. It'll be next month. Uh, is uh, about, all about a competition of throwing and destroying cars. Because the writer who pitched it noticed there's a lot of art pieces of art of people in Scion lifting up and throwing cars right, for some right. reason. So now we're going to have a competition about it. Right. It's like, so well, if I put these pieces together, well, then there's, maybe there's a reason why they throw cars. And we came up with this idea of the car Olympics, effectively, where you just toss cars around and get judged there, there, on that. There are other car competitions in there. Right. There are. But that's that was the basis of the idea. Um, uh, and, and similarly, uh, I, I think Matthew was like, you know, hey, you know, uh, they gave from out or they plan out from out of spaces in public domain. Mm-hmm. We could just 
do that. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, part of the... I think the first they came from the Tasty bit we did uh, was they came from outer space. Right. And the main reason behind that was the somewhat repetitive question I would often get of uh, how can I run this game with aliens coming from outer space? And while the simple answer and the one I would often give through clenched teeth was why you just use the game as it's currently written, you just have the aliens coming from space. <laughs> as opposed to the sea. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but obviously, you know, for some people the title is everything, the title is the key, and they came from beneath the sea, gave them the impression that this was going to be a permanently aquatic adventure. So I decided, okay, time to make it. They came from outer space. What can I do to make this book, this tiny book, uh, actually something other than me writing through clenched teeth. You just make it come from outer space. <laughs> and so I came up with a couple of new archetypes to play. Uh, the Astronaut. And uh, now I've got to strain my memory to think on who the other one is. Uh, I think it's the Cynic or the Skeptic. Um, well, we've got one of those in uh, Heroes in a World of Horror. Um, I think. Mm. Um, the, but I, I did that, came up with some new tropes that they can use as well that match those archetypes, But and, and came up with suggestions for some of the monsters from beneath the sea that can easily be kind of, uh, I guess, astro-fitted. And uh, that was it. You know, it's a, a small product, doesn't cost much, answers a very popular fan question, has done pretty well on DriveThruRPG because it's clearly been up, people have still been asking that question. And that, to me, uh, you know, it's always different when you apply something personally to these things, answered the question of, are these tasty bits worth doing? Right. Uh, because I was seeing, oh, okay, so people do want these products. People want these tiny questions answered in bite-size chunks. Mm-hmm. As, and then, I, then of course, it comes back to the drawing board. Okay, well, what can we do for the next one? And as you say, there's Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yep. Uh, it's a public domain movie. There's no B-movie more famous, probably, than Plan 9 from Outer Space, largely due to Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, as it's public domain, I can use the names from it, the plot from it, and so on to do a tasty bit called "They Came from Plan Nine. And uh, even though it's more about Plan Ten, right? Um, but yeah, again, incorporating characters, plot hooks, things like that. So yeah, yeah, and I mean, the, the other constraint which I forgot to mention is that we did try to keep them to under five thousand words, which is ends up to be about like eight to ten pages mm. uh it's pretty pretty short um and that that flux around sometimes um uh it could be longer because of there's, there's there's tables or there's more art or it makes sense or it's shorter because we don't do that um some of the early tasty bits were actually really short because we had to do them quickly um so it's like like the first one was just a character in a character sheet because mm-hmm. it's like i had to do it on like a month's notice so it's like crap um so uh, but again, this ties into inspiration is that it didn't really come from, we really want to make a program where we give people random bits of story path stuff every month. It was, here are the constraints. What can we do with that? And then a cool idea came from that. So when you 
come in, like Matthew said, I'm going to hire a guy to take my ideas and make it into a real thing. That's, that's a possible way of doing it. I mean, there are lots of very rich people who have done exactly that method. But if you're a professional creative, more often you're given a series of constraints. Like, okay, we have, we want you to make a film about this. You have $50,000 and three months to shoot it in. What can you do with that kind of thing? Um, and that's kind of our equivalent of it. It was the, that we had a cool idea because we had some very strong constraints. So a lot of inspiration doesn't come just out of the blue. A lot of it is, let's take this wealth of experience I've developed, figure out what our constraints are, and then inside of that, do a lot of uh, brainstorming, either as an individual or with a team, throw a bunch of stuff at, at the wall, as it were, come up with some really good ideas, and then expand on those and, and actually move on those. That's where That's how it all kind of ties together to me. Oh, that was uh, incredibly insightful. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, because these are such small projects, uh, we, you know, it's not the kind of thing where we're exposing it to a rata. We're not expecting a massive amount of feedback. But it's been really gratifying to see how many people have been speaking about them. I know with the uh, pets for Eon, uh, there's been a small amount of buzz about it, but there's definitely been a buzz. And that's that. That's it's fantastic that people are engaging with these simple projects. That you don't. We don't need to always be making one hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred thousand word books to get people excited about our games. Mm-hmm. The one thing I'm finding interesting is, as people talk about it, is because it's not a hundred thousand word book. Um, they some people seem to feel like that gives them more latitude to be creative with the material they have because it is so small. It's not meant to be a big thing. Uh, so for example, um, there was a review on the Aeon Taste Picks about pets. Uh, and someone's like, I don't play Aeon. I have no interest in Aeon. Nothing about this product makes me want to play Aeon. But now I could use this to model my tiger and aberrant. And that's exactly the kind of thing we want people to do with this stuff is like, it's it's a small 10 page PDF. Yeah, hack it into shape, do something else with it, build something around it. You know, if it's a if it's a one scene adventure, build a whole adventure around it. That's exactly what you should do. But a bigger book maybe feel like, well, I should probably run it the way it was written because probably there's certain intent or design there. And, and with these things, it's like there's it's so small we can't possibly tell you what to do with it because it's not entirely a full thing. It's just a mm-hmm. little bit. And then build on that. Yeah, I'm exactly. Sure. I imagine they're quite fun to edit as well. You know, hammer this out in the course of an hour. Uh, they are they're fairly simple generally, which is nice. Uh, it is it is cool sometimes just to have like a little quick thing to do. Uh, Eddie is also really good about reminding me, like, "Hey, this comes out next month. Can you do right. it?" Because because sometimes I'll get one sent to me like four months before it comes out, and I'm like, eh, "I'm gonna do that right now." And right. then Eddie will put me, you know, a month and a half out and be like, "Hey." Oh yeah, I'm not nearly that prompt. I'll try right. and get the next one to you a little sooner than the month of release. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, that there, there's something gratifying as well as creators to working on something that you can get through so quickly because the elation of having finished a project is there, whether it's a short project or whether it's a long one. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, knowing that you've worked on something that's about to be released. And this is something I often say to people who want to create something for community content or want to create something and don't know about community content. It's that you can create something that is anywhere from between two and 10 pages in length. And that is still a perfectly valid product. It's still a product you can sell and it's right. a product you can be proud of. And as our tasty bits are showing on Drive Through RPG, people will buy them. Yep. Uh, and mm-hmm. I mean, you can see that on the various uh, community content programs, whether it is one of ours, like the Story Path Nexus or Canis Minor, Slurician Vault. I mean, Slurician Vault has got some products that are doing have done incredibly well. I mean, Frostlands of Fenrelic is probably the most famous one at this point, mm-hmm. uh, and that is some. That's a book that is made up of bite-sized pieces of lots of authors working on tiny bits and putting them together. And I know some people have done similar things with the Storytellers Vault for Paradox, and mm-hmm. likewise for the the name of it escapes me, Chaosium's one. I don't know if it's a Miskatonic one or something like that. Um, um, Vaults, I want to say? Yeah, maybe. I think there is one. Mm. Uh, but yeah, Chaosium has done these sort of anthology-like community content programs. I In terms of inspiration, which is of course one of our headlines for this program, I think that aspiring writers should look to these small projects as good sources of inspiration. You do not need your first book to be an epic. And in fact, I would say you're more likely to trip and fall if you try and make it an epic. Right. Go for short stories. Go for small supplements that address one corner of the world. And, you know, dig your hooks into the community, to the customer base like that, and then explore another corner, and then another one, then another one. Then you put them all together in one book at half the price of all Mm -hmm. four bought separately, and you're well on your way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's funny, I actually weirdly realized this very early in my career, um, because uh, one of my first professional projects was working on Cartoon Action Hour. And uh, when I was working on it with Cynthia, she had already designed the system. So I came in pretty late in the process, but it was the, she wanted to develop um, a lot of cartoon alikes, cartoons that felt like existing 80s cartoons, but weren't actually them for copyright reasons. And so it's like, do a spin on G.I. Joe in two pages, do a spin on Transformers in two pages. But, and so I did these, I helped her with these little kind of short little bios to give enough information for people to run this cartoon, but not so much to spell it out. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of them was uh, Dark Brigade, which was basically G.I. Joe, but instead of fighting uh, terrorists, you're fighting, uh, you know, like Hollywood monsters. So like it's an entire group of terrorists that are also wolfmen and mummies and stuff. And I would get really interested in this. And so I actually pitched her doing a full book on it. And so I did Dark Brigade book. Um, it was like 64 pages. It's in, in retrospect, still a very small book, but like a lot bigger than the four or five I did originally. Um, but I don't think I could have done that like out of the gate. It'd been like, okay, you have werewolves and GI Joe go. I don't know if I could have done 64 pages, but I did a small version of it titled that there's a good response. I had some ideas. I was able to expand on it. So yeah, doing a small slice of what you're looking at and then building it out is a much more sustainable way. And like Matthew said, mm-hmm. this is kind of our version of our own community content programs. Let's do a thing. Let's see what happens. And um, I know at least one of the community, or sorry, one of the Tasty Bite bits, um, I won't say which one, but one of them um, has now going to be a foundation for a potentially future bigger project. So we're also using it to say, oh, it does a good reaction to that. We liked how that turned out. So yeah, let's actually make that into a proper book now. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm well, ready. look at that. Look at that. We are approaching the hour mark, <laughs> and we spent about half of this episode just under on the subject. That may be a new low record. <laughs> Speaking of which... Um, it's Mistonic Repository, is the name of it. Suppository, that's right. So, Not suppository. Repository. I have to say something real quick uh, because I got really distracted during this recording. Because during this recording, uh, the announcement went out that Dragons and Tate, our friends who are working on the Scion TV show, are also developing an Exalted TV show. Oh, wow. Which I was kind of coyly mm. not talking about earlier. Like, I know, I was, I was teasing you with thing. it, wasn't I? <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that announcement has gone live, so I can talk about it now. Uh, it is not a thing that I am working on. It is a thing that Jenkins and Tate are developing with Paradox Interactive as another licensor, licensee, you know, relationship. Um, but I do like the folks Jenkins and Tate, obviously. We've, 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 we've talked to them about Scion, so I'm excited to see yep. what happens with this Exalted show. Yeah. Because um, Exalted is like... I mean, yes, I would like to see a lot of our properties, obviously, on TV or on video games, but I think that people have wanted, like, an Exalted video game or Exalted anime for so long now. Definitely. And the closest they got was the comics. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so let's make Trinity into, like, a Mass Effect-style game. Um, yep. Let's make <laughs> Exalted into a TV show. So, yeah, no, very excited about that. So, yeah, got a little distracted at the end of the recording because all my discords and slacks just, like, exploded oh. all of a sudden. Um because I was trying to make sure I posted it places too before somebody else just like randomly found it. Right. So yeah, sorry about that. But I'm excited and I can talk about it now. So if you haven't seen the announcement, uh, definitely you can check out Jenkins and Tate on Twitter or you can check out their website at drinkinsandtate.com uh, and see their announcey bits. Very excited. Yes. Uh, so we have tasty bits. They have announcey bits. It's <laughs> Everyone a bits. Yes, everyone is in bits about this exalted news, in good bits. And uh, speaking of bits, if people wanted to find you via the ways of megabits and cyberspace, <laughs> Eddie, where would they go? See what you did there. Mm. Um, you can find me at uh, pugsteady.com. You can find me on Twitter at pugsteady. And you can find me, you should hang out in the Onyx Path Discord in the Onyx Path Cash channel. And Dixie, if they wanted to navigate the web, and uh, <laughs> you're never getting the web you're gonna go talk to eddie oh that's true no oh, i missed a uh, trick there uh, fine dixie if they wanted to find you online <laughs> if they want to find you on the line where would they find you on the line get my phone number uh you can find me as dixie cyanide on most social media and also hanging out in various onyx path discord channels especially the onyx pathcast channel uh, where we can talk about handwritings and exalted tv shows and all kinds of weird shit yeah, and they can find me on the World Wide Web, and uh, <laughs> well, I'm refusing to say Eddie's surname again because it will Beyond be reappropriated. <laughs> Ariadne's a Wub. Uh, <laughs> yes, so they can find me on MatthewDawkins.com. They can find me on Twitter as DawkinsMP. They can find me on the Onyx Path Discord, especially the Onyx Path channel, just like the rest of us. And you can find all of us on theonyxpath.com. Do check us out every single week where we post updates on our projects, what's coming up soon. Hopefully, uh, you will soon see a Kickstarter for Werewolf the Apocalypse 20th Anniversary Edition, The Apocalyptic Record, or a book close to that title, hopefully shorter. <laughs> and uh, you can support that too. But until then, thank you very much for listening. Many worlds, one path cast.